This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week, we're in Missouri. Through the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. And when you hear the cold, you know so well, sisters speak Hi, everyone. It's Amelia. Welcome back to the 50 Feminist States podcast for this second special episode from Missouri. There were too many amazing people that I wanted to talk to there. So we kicked things off for season three in St. Louis, where I spoke to Allison Thompson. If you haven't listened to that episode, you should definitely uh, click back through and hear what she has to say about her organizing work in St. Louis, as well as her creating work and writing as a healing process. In this episode, I was able to speak with S.E. Nash or Sean, uh, who lives in Kansas City, about his artistic work that engages with feminism and fermentation and the sculptures that he makes that include fermented objects. It is such a cool conversation. When I found his art online, I was just really like astounded and so intrigued. And he's written some really amazing things about the ways in which we can think about ourselves as multicellular organisms and how that might actually provide us really useful tools to talk about gender identity and trans identity and to think of ourselves as a different kind of global community than the really anthropocentric, human-centric way that we normally think about that, that has produced all sorts of really binary ways of thinking about the world. So I'll go ahead and let John introduce himself and tell you a little bit about his work. Thanks so much for tuning in to the 50 Feminist States podcast, season three. So I'm S.E. Nash, also known as Nash and Sean. I've always been interested in food. I was always like cooking, um, cooked as a teenager, and learned how to be a vegetarian. And that, of course, was linked to my politics at the time, uh, seeing a lot of injustice in the world in the meat-eating mid-south of of Memphis. And I was empowered by the idea that consumer choices could kind of change a much larger fabric, have a ripple effect on our lives. So food um, has been an important part of my work for a long time. But I was cooking for my wife and I in New York and working in the kitchen almost as much as I was working in the studio. And I felt like that just had to be part of how I was understanding my art practice. And there are a lot of artists, especially feminist artists and practitioners of like relational aesthetics or social practice or community-based art, who have done things um, either to critique the home in the kitchen or to bring about an awareness of of different kinds of labor and gendered labor. And for me, it was partly that thinking that all the work that one does is important and needed to be recognized in my studio practice. I was reading Michael Pollan's book, Cooked, and he explains how to make a sourdough starter. I made a sourdough starter and realized that the scientific aspects 
combined with some alchemical magic that it, it seemed to me of just finding something to be alive that previously didn't seem alive. Uh, flour and water combined to show that microbes are literally everywhere was the, that was the spark that had me sort of understanding that I needed to pursue fermentation, whether or not it would enter my art practice. I then went to a fermentation residency with Sandor Katz, the author of uh, Wild Fermentation and The Art of Fermentation. And Sandor lives within the queer community of Short Mountain in Tennessee. Uh, it's an off-the-grid community, and there's a, a bunch of different uh, queer intentional communities situated around there. I'm from Tennessee, and I was really excited to return to that place to sort of figure out where all these things sort of coalesce for me, identity, food, art making, and social engagement, community engagement. After I learned a lot about fermentation in that three-week residency, I came back to the studio in New York and started figuring out ways to make uh, fermentation a part of a sculptural interaction. And so I started to look at vessels of fermenting food in concert with, with sculptural forms. And um, in my first show titled They Them There at a gallery in Williamsburg, I had a number of different sculptures with fermented foods. And I did a kimchi demonstration on the opening night. And then for the closing, I had a potluck where we could try all the fermented food. And I also invited people to participate in that show as well uh, by bringing jars of, of things they had fermented. How many fermented foods do you think we eat in a day? When I was looking at the photos from the exhibition John's talking about where he had these works of art sculptures where some of the parts of the sculpture were fermented, I really had to kind of look very closely to figure out, okay, what is food and what is fermented and which parts of this are growing? Which ones are alive? And I wasn't sure. I realized that I have such a lack of knowledge about the microbiome in our own bodies, the ones that surround us, and the things that I consume that are alive in and of themselves, even as they perhaps make their way through my digestive system. So I asked Sean if he could share a little bit about the reaction to that work um, and kind of what people made of these alive and or not alive sculptures. Exactly. The reaction of what's food, what's fermenting, what's living and what's not. Those are all of the things that have become an important part of the dialogue and considering the work. And I think that's like an ontological compass for me, where the sculptures, the, what we consider the non-living sculpture can question what's living and then vice versa. So when people are looking at it, there's this curiosity of what we're looking at. People who come to it with knowing that they're going to see something fermented, that also usually makes them question, like, which thing is, is fermenting? Does the sculpture have, like, some fermented food on it? And actually, in some of the new sculptures, I am dehydrating and making, like, fermented papers that become included as a, as a sculptural material. So they're no longer liquid, and they still smell, actually, which is a part of the work, <laughs> but they don't have to 
always be fermenting in a jar. So I'm experimenting with those material ways of dealing with it. But, you know, it's really about, about bodies. It's about understanding the context of bodies in relation to a vessel of something that is living. And so everything from like uncovering or, or making apparent the visual reality of what fermented foods look like. So if people drink kombucha and they've never seen a kombucha scoby, there's a curiosity. <laughs> They're weird looking. They look like they, they look like skin. Uh, and I've been turning them into like a parchment, sort of a paper fabric. And it has this translucency of like a hide, which of course is a little uncanny to to look at and think about as a as a material knowing that it was living, but it wasn't the way we think of a multicellular animal. However, it is a conglomeration of, of single-celled bacteria and yeast. But I think in that uh, image of the, the vessel as showing digestion, showing interior, exterior, I think the sculptures also kind of describe this this curious landscape of of imagining where we fit into or how how we can understand microbial life and then better understand the complexity of multicellular life and how living together and thinking with microbes creates a sympoetic world you know to to live in accordance with the understanding that bodies and living things and non-living things are not always what we perceptually think they are. I really love the way that this sort of artistic, biological, sympathetic understanding of the world in Sean's mind leads us to a kind of breakdown of a gender binary, a sort of gender neutrality in which identity can be expressed in so many ways and doesn't need to be limited to, you know, these socially constructed pairs of two binaries in the world. Well, we can talk about the body as being made of um, at least half bacterial cells to, to human cells or half microbial cells to human cells. Um, that is in the reference man. And we all, we know that, that the reference man does not uh, encapsulate or describe everyone by any mean. Um, but let's just say, so even in that framework, we're at least half or more bacteria to human cells. From that perspective, I think that we can start to understand what being human is in a, a symbiotic sense, that our microbiome is very important to us. And then from there to think about, well, what is a human and what are bodies? I think even from that kernel of knowledge, we can start to break open what our language around bodies is. And, and that from that very scientific point of view, the binary doesn't make sense. Microbes themselves replicate. So if we're, if we're contained with, of half or more bacteria and our bacterial cells replicate through various means and have their own genetics and don't have sex or gender in the way that we think of them. I also think like, well, it makes obvious the way that we, that we use and think of gender. And I don't say that to, you know, gender is important. I am a trans guy and have come to understand my gender through those terms, but through those very 
uncoverings of, of like what it means to be um, gender nonconforming, I think it really fits with a lot of what's coming out about our, about our microbiome and revisioning the human in the context of all these factors of scientific, social, and political, biopolitical awareness of those dialogues and how the ideology around those dialogues, you know, have, have created bodies. So there's a lot of ways that it breaks it open and, and sort of allows for the availability of thinking of people first as a place, well, I guess to ask them, right, <laughs> how they identify. Um, and, I, and I have said, like, well, maybe we're all they, them, there. That doesn't mean I think everyone should adopt gender non-binary pronouns, but, you know, it's, it's a place to start thinking about, oh, yeah, maybe we are all a they, them, there. <laughs> what does that do for, yeah, for the, for the sort of biological, biopolitical situation? That, that's, that's the thing about working with food that I haven't addressed is that in the context of a gallery show, you know, people can be sort of nervous about what they might say about an artwork and think that they don't understand it. I hope that by bringing food, albeit like a, a strange food to some or a curious food to others or like something that they understand and use in their lives daily, it could be that range of people. We're eating together and eating together is a social lubricant for just, you know, being comfortable to talk about things a little more casually without the idea of judgment. So I, I do think that hopefully that opens up the context for conversation and some of the intimidating larger ideas, which I'm totally engaged in, those things can hopefully become more accessible to um, actually talking about in, in person. I was really fascinated in the ways in which like food not only brings us together as people, but also can make things more approachable. The way that bringing food into an art gallery, that making food art, making art out of food can bring people into a relationship with art who may not think of themselves as art people or who may not feel invited into that space or included in the art world. And the way that kind of Sean's work with food and fermentation and art breaks down the kind of intellectuality or high culture, low culture divide of the art world and just invites new conversations and new people in, which I think is, is really beautiful. This also translates into how we make food and the ways that we can not only empower ourselves by having different experiences with food, but by creating food and feeding ourselves. I think that that ability to go into the kitchen and over time use an embodied knowledge, use embodied awareness to experiment. And it really is like the kitchen meets the lab meets the studio meets you know, these places where knowledge happens. Understanding this, I think, also brings about a, a, a sort of awareness of authoritative knowledge and how we, what we trust and why we trust what we trust and why we have fear around what we have certain fears around. And that 
authoritative knowledge in these spaces, you know, is usually whatever you're called a chef, you're called a scientist and it's typically uh, male. And so I think that these ways of seeing fermentation through a home practice um, that isn't necessarily, it is certainly elevated in restaurants and, and kitchens, but I think, I think it's really important to know that there's like creative production and knowledge creation happening within individual kitchens or individual spaces. And that, that, that doesn't always need the stamp of approval by, you know, the, uh, let's say FDA <laughs> um, or, or, you know, whatever other authoritative body says like, yeah, this thing's good. It can go to market. I've, I've encountered people here being intimidated by the idea of trying things that other people make. And that really surprises me. I think it's definitely a sort of bred idea out of food culture that is so obsessed with labels and nutrition and just being in a package makes it sort of sanctioned by some kind of authority that we can believe in and, and we and we think is safe. So practicing fermentation gives you a lot of cues actually about like what those things are, what that fear is. And you know, there's never been a case of foodborne illness from food fermentation. There's been like acidosis, like people drinking too much kombucha and getting like, that's too acidic and getting, <laughs> and there's been, there's been a few, um, uh, raw cheese, uh, cheese incidents, but, um, but, you know, by and large, it's nothing like you see on the scale of, you know, big agriculture, uh, and, and salmonella outbreaks and things like that. It's, it's, there's no case of, of foodborne illness from fermentation. And when you're practicing it, you sort of realize like what to look out for, but it's a rhythm. It's a dance with this, this food medium that you learn. And yeah, it's, it's just a fascinating process to be involved in. So Sean so graciously went down this kind of rabbit hole about his work with me. And I have to admit, I really nerded out around uh, just like thinking so much about food and fermentation and feminism and gender all together. But I wanted to make sure we talked a little bit about Missouri and Kansas City as well. So we'll close the interview by hearing from Sean how he came to Kansas City uh, and the community political work that he's seeing done there and is excited to be a part of there. I'll start with coming to Kansas City. My wife and I came here about three years ago for her job at KU Med. She's a gynecologic oncologist and palliative care doctor. So far, I mean, we absolutely love it here. It's really awesome. And we were talking earlier about politics coming to the Midwest and seeing the political change and being involved right away was a really different experience than than living in New York. So we were in New York for eight years before living here. We didn't have a lot of time and energy to, to spend um, being all that engaged on a local level, especially. And 
I think in a big concentrated city, we also felt like somehow somebody else is doing the work, right? Which, which is, is a shame. But here in Kansas City, we, I think, felt right away that our contributions would be meaningful. And, and that empowered us to really kind of see the way we could interact with this environment um, in ways that fulfill us. So we had lived in, uh, in New York for eight years um, before that, I was in New Haven, Connecticut, and went to Yale for my graduate degree in painting. That was that was about five years, and I, I had moved there from Tennessee. I couldn't wait to get out of Tennessee, to be honest. Although there were a lot of things that I loved about it, and I think returning to the fermentation residency was certainly a turning point in understanding what the South southern culture southern queer culture has to offer i guess what what it is um that the fact that it exists of course that there are you know incredible queer and trans communities all throughout the south and there's a lot of people who are sort of underrecognized so certainly painting a whole location as being a, a certain way just like the midwest just like the South is is really a sort of mistake, a sort of national perception of these locations. And when I went to that residency, that actually was a turning point in understanding my own trans identity to come from a pretty regular day job in New York. I left that job to go to the fermentation residency to specifically uh, spend time around queer and trans folks and uh, ferment. I didn't really know it at the time, but, you know, I was seeking a sort of way to understand my identity in a, in a different context and perhaps in a, in a really personal one having come from there. So fermentation actually played a pretty big role in coming out as trans. Um, those things have run parallel. And I definitely think about the context for which thinking about community engagement, collaborative activity, you know, working together to build things. I started collaborating with, uh, you know, co-authoring I, a friend of mine who went to the residency. Her name is uh, Stephanie Maroney. We wrote a, a piece for a publication called Fermenting Feminism called Bubbling Bodies. What do we call it? Bubbling Bodies and Queer Microbes. It was a reflection on our time at, at the residency. So through this idea of like transformation and bodily physical awareness and embodiment through fermentation in Tennessee, <laughs> uh, where I'm from, that those things all sort of coalesce to really kind of finding myself and then moving here and, you know, feeling uh, much more empowered here in Kansas City than I did in, in New York for, for a lot of reasons, but that there is a lot of exciting activity here, you know, I think we can build on and move forward with in, in some really big ways. Thanks so much to Sean for doing this interview with me and being on the 50 Feminist States podcast. Thanks so much to you for listening. These first two episodes in Missouri have been so rich and so interesting. And I think of open season three by really paying attention to the way that 
art can help us rethink our personal stories in the world, like we heard from Allison last week, and the structures through which we analyze the world can really help us break down binaries uh, that have oppressed people for a very long time and consistently marginalize folks in our worlds today. Next week, we'll head to Kansas. Well, in all truth, we'll really kind of stay in Kansas City and just talk more about Kansas than we did in these episodes. And we'll hear from Dr. Valerie French, who's a physician um, living in Missouri, working in Kansas as an OBGYN. So that's up next week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please subscribe to the 55 Estates podcast in your favorite platform and rate and review us on iTunes. You can also go ahead and follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. That's F-I-F-T-Y Feminist States. Can't wait to keep traveling with all of you lovely feminist listeners. See you on the road. for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.